Welcome to Tomorrow's World. The wise individual prepares for the future. Children go to school not always because they enjoy it, but because their parents are looking down the road to the time when their children will reach adulthood and have to take care of themselves. Parents go to great lengths to get them in the best schools, and they work with them at home to give them every advantage. As we mature, we see the value of school. And many young people prepare for university and work hard to be at the top of their class. The wise person sacrifices today for the future. He thinks four years, ten years, and even further into the future. For example, the wise person considers the fact that he may retire in 30 or 40 years, and he prepares for that time. But no matter how long we live, this life is short compared to eternity. It's only the blink of an eye. So why is it that we spend so little time considering whether there is an eternity in our future? And if so, what are the implications and what are we doing to prepare for it? A common religious belief is that when you die, you don't really die. Some religions teach reincarnation. That is, you may come back as another human being, or you may come back in some lower life form, perhaps as a junkyard dog. Professing Christians also believe you really don't die, but instead you have an immortal soul. In other words, your body dies, but there is an immortal or ever-living soul in you, which at death either goes to heaven to be with God, or goes to an ever-burning hellfire to writhe in pain forever. But is that what the Bible teaches? Can you know? The answer is yes, you can. When I come back, I'm going to show you what the Bible actually teaches about what happens when you die. And it is not what most people think. Stay tuned. A warm welcome once again to Tomorrow's World. This idea that human beings will not really die is found in the Bible, but it may surprise you to learn who actually introduced this teaching. It's a very ancient notion, going back to the time of our first parents. God placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden full of trees bearing fruits and nuts of all kinds. No doubt there was a great variety of fruits, vegetables, and other foods available to them. But there was one kind of fruit found on a very special tree in the midst of the garden, and they were instructed by God not to eat it. Shortly afterward, Satan, in the form of a serpent, cunningly asked Eve in Genesis, the third chapter, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
She answered him by explaining that they could eat of every tree, but with one exception. Eve then repeated God's warning as it was given to Adam. God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And to this the serpent replied, You will not surely die. Here Satan contradicted God's very direct statement, leaving Eve with a decision. Believe God who said she would die, or believe Satan who said she would not die. To this day, most people without realizing it reject God and believe the devil. Do you? Many people misunderstand this first encounter between humankind and Satan, in part because it is a very compressed account. The tree from which they were forbidden to eat was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We should not think, though, that this means God had not given them knowledge of His standards of conduct. He had indeed done so. And as part of that instruction, He had forbidden them to eat from that tree. Eve, however, was persuaded by Satan's temptation. She bought the line that eating from the tree would make one wise. Yet her choice of rejecting God's revelation was, in fact, very foolish. It was the first of mankind's countless decisions to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And our foolishness continues to this very day. Adam and Eve rejected God and listened to Satan's advice. When they did so, their view of life and how to live it immediately began to change. They suddenly became ashamed of their bodies, and they sewed fig leaves together to cover their private parts. Why? What caused this change in how they saw each other? The answer is found in God's question the next time He met them, after they had given in to Satan's sales pitch. Who told you that you were naked? Remember, they were the only two humans in the garden at the time, and God put them there with no clothes. God did not have a problem with their state, and until they listened to Satan, neither did they. It was Satan who taught them to feel shame and fear regarding their naked bodies. The idea that the body is a source of shame is indeed an old one, and it occurs in many forms throughout history. It is a common feature of dualistic philosophies which teach that a person's mind is the real or eternal person and that the body is a temporary lesser and often shameful feature of our existence. Plato, Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, and Descartes, and a multitude of other philosophers have contributed to this false understanding of the human self. The Neoplatonist concept of duality heavily influenced professing Christian doctrine. But it all began with Satan's lie which taught Adam and Eve to feel shame regarding God's physical creation. Modern Christianity has been unknowingly so deeply influenced by pagan ideas that the average churchgoer is totally deceived about what the Bible really says regarding this and many other subjects. For those of us who grew up with a traditional Christian background, we were taught that the soul is something distinct from the body, which goes to heaven or hell or purgatory for a while after the body dies. Yet John's Gospel in chapter 3 and verse 13 makes it clear that Jesus totally rejected Satan's assertion. John tells us that no human being other than Christ, which would include such biblical figures as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Daniel, is in heaven.
No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. But what about this thing called the soul? Doesn't the Bible say that the soul goes to heaven or a place of torment when we die? It might surprise you, but no, it doesn't. The word soul in the Old Testament comes from the Hebrew word nephesh and merely means a creature. For example, the first time the word soul is used in the King James Version of the Bible, it is found in Genesis, the second chapter, and verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. This alone should cause us to pause and think. Note that it says man became a living soul. Would that not indicate the possibility of a non-living soul? The New King James Version translates it in a way that leads to less confusion, stating that man became a living being. Further, a careful study of the original language of the Old Testament scriptures demonstrates that the word nephesh, from which the word soul comes, can refer to other creatures apart from humankind. For example, in Genesis, the first chapter and verse 21 says, So God created great sea creatures and every living thing, and the word is nephesh, that moves, with which the waters abounded, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. So the Hebrew word from which we translate the English word soul refers to all living creatures. And the Bible also refers to nephesh, the soul, as being dead. Notice in Leviticus, the 21st chapter, verse 11, where it speaks of a dead body. And the English word body in this verse is the Hebrew nephesh. So if nephesh is the Hebrew word translated in English as soul, then a soul can die. This is confirmed in Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, and verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And this is repeated in verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. In other words, my friends, the Bible describes man as perishable. When most professing Christians read what is arguably the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3:16. They fail to notice the importance of a powerful statement within it, which is most relevant to this subject. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know what it means when food perishes. And when we speak of people perishing in a plane crash, everyone knows that this means they died. They are not merely injured, they died, they're dead. So when it comes to biblical matters, why do people push other improper meanings into the word perish? The Bible teaches that life and death are opposites. Nowhere does scripture ever describe human life as being inherently immortal. Immortal simply means not mortal. But as we have already seen, even the soul, whatever one may think it is, is mortal. It can die. Remember Ezekiel 18, verses 4 and 20, which tell us, The soul that sins shall die. God's word reveals that immortality, in other words, eternal life in any form, is not something we currently have, but rather it is something that we must seek. 
Notice Romans, the second chapter, verses 6 and 7. God will render to each one according to his deeds. Now notice this. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Very clearly, eternal life and immortality is something we do not have. We must seek it. And 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are made to decay and die, and that immortality, that is eternal life, is something that we must put on. Here's what he tells us in verses 53 and 54. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now if I say you are wearing a shirt, you don't have to put it on. You only put it on if you don't already have it on. As this scripture says, immortality, that is eternal life, is something we don't have. We must put it on. We read in 2 Timothy, the first chapter and verse 10, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. Now most of us grew up having never read the Bible. Instead, we accepted traditions handed down to us by parents and friends. We accepted as truth things never found in the Bible. A very wise man once said that it is harder to unlearn error than to learn truth from the beginning, and how true that is. So where did this idea of mankind having an immortal soul come from? In a note on 1 Timothy 6.16 and its statement that Christ alone has immortality, the mainstream Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary makes this remarkable comment. It is mere heathen philosophy that attributes to the soul indestructibility in itself, which is to be attributed solely to God's gift. Again, Paul affirms this very point, that eternal life is a gift from God. In Romans 6, 23, he says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, how simple. What we earn from sin is death, but through Jesus Christ we can gain the gift of eternal life. And Paul wrote to Titus telling him that eternal life is something we hope for, not something that is a right of birth. We can read that in Titus, the third chapter, and verse 7. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus himself tells us in John, the fifth chapter, and verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. The Bible consistently describes the state of the dead as being unconscious. 
we are instructed with the following from Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goes forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. And this blunt statement is given to us in Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter, and verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. It is not the Old Testament alone that likens death to unconscious sleep. There is the account found in the book of John that describes how Jesus' friend Lazarus was gravely ill. A message was sent to Jesus to come quickly that he might heal his friend. On the way to see him, he broke the news to his disciples that Lazarus had died. Notice how he explained it to them in John the 11th chapter. Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Well, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. The Apostle Paul also likened death to sleep. On one particular occasion, he wrote the people of Thessalonica to encourage them concerning loved ones who had died. Perhaps there have been some recent deaths in the area. Notice what he said here in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, beginning verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Deceived leaders in the early church viewed the scriptures through the lens of the pagan philosophical ideas of their time. Some leaders were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Note this quote from the highly respected Erdman's Handbook to the History of Christianity. Some Christian writers were too strongly influenced by philosophical ideas of divine unchangeability, quite different from the consistent steadfastness of the living God of the Bible. Origen and other early leaders believed Satan's lie that man would not die. They followed the heathen doctrine that man had an immortal soul. Not all ideas stuck, but these ideas heavily influenced later doctrine. Instead of believing God, most professing Christians believe, as I did growing up, that we have an immortal soul that upon death will go immediately to heaven. But the immortal soul of the disobedient would go to a very different place to be tormented forever and ever. To this day, certain scriptures have wrongly been interpreted through this lens. One such verse is Revelation, the 14th chapter, and verse 11, where it says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. But what is the context of this passage? Is it discussing the final eternal fate of the wicked? No, it isn't. 
It concerns the day of the Lord, the time of God's wrath on rebellious mankind, during which suffering human beings will experience one trial following closely on the heels of another. So what does it mean when it says, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever? When we hear someone say, the line went on forever, we understand that it's a very long line. We use this kind of figurative language routinely in conversation. And smoke is the byproduct of combustion. And it is that smoke that is described in this verse as ascending up forever. When the source of fuel for a fire is consumed, the fire will cease to exist. But its smoke can disperse upward for a long, long time. Now for sure, the Bible does talk about fires being the ultimate penalty for the unrighteous. But the fire the Bible describes is much hotter than the fire of common belief. In fact, it is so hot that it will totally consume those thrown into it. John the Baptist said that Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire in Matthew 3, verse 11. And then John explains the baptism of fire in the next verse, that's verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Fire by nature is unquenchable. It burns as long as there is combustible material. And only smoke and ashes are left when the fuel is gone. The Bible is unambiguous in the fact that human beings are mortal and will utterly perish unless they receive God's grace. As we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We all know that we are going to die. But if we are mortal, this means that when we die, we are truly dead, and we don't have a soul that goes immediately to heaven or hell. It also means that we are not going to come back in another reincarnated life form. But if this is the case, then what hope is there? The Bible reveals that there is a coming resurrection from the dead. In other words, those who are dead can and will be resurrected to life once again. As Paul tells us, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And Jesus tells us the following in John the fifth chapter, verses 28 and 29. And notice that even in this passage there is a contrast between the resurrection of life and its opposite. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Those who come back to life in the resurrection of condemnation will have judgment pronounced upon them before they are thrown into a lake of fire to be totally consumed, as we have seen today from other scriptures. The prophet Malachi describes the final fate of the wicked in chapter 4, verses 1 and 3, in this book that is named after him. 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. Does this mean that we are without hope? Not at all. The Bible, which plainly declares we are mortal, also holds out hope for immortality. This is the whole point of John 3.16. We don't have to perish. Jesus Christ has promised the gift of eternal life at His second coming to those who believe in His gospel and act upon it. For many, this is a little understood and seemingly far-off promise, similar to the promises given to the biblical character Esau. One day, Esau came back from hunting, tired and hungry. He came across his brother Jacob, who was preparing a delicious pot of soup, and asked for a bowl of it. Esau was a base man who lived for today and cared little for the future. So when Jacob bargained with him for the birthright blessing to be passed to him from his father, he traded it for a bowl of lentils. I don't have time to go into it now, but that blessing was far greater than either brother could imagine at the time. He traded away an incredible future for a bowl of soup. My friends, might you be doing the same thing? Wouldn't you agree that in preparing for your future, that you not overlook your eternal future? If you would like to learn more about what the Bible teaches about life after death, be sure to go to our website that will be shown momentarily to read or download our booklet, Is There Life After Death? This instructive booklet will help you to discover the wonderful truth that there is hope beyond the grave. And be sure to come back next week at the same time when Richard Ames and I will be bringing you more good news of tomorrow's world from the pages of your Bible. See you next week. Until then, goodbye, friends. If you would like to discover more about how this topic impacts your life, visit us online at www.lcgcanada.org to read our featured literature free of charge. The preceding program has been produced by the Living Church of God.